Let's take our Bibles. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. This is kind of an unorthodox study this morning, but I'm really excited about it. We're going to look at a list of names this morning that may not seem to have any bearing on our lives. But actually, I think this passage and, and these names can be a source of really great encouragement and, and spiritual impetus to us. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a very um, subtle temptation that the enemy uses against us that I don't think we talk about very often. And it can really be a source of uh, personal insecurity and it can be a source of um, kind of spiritual reticence. It's, it's a crafty little uh, lie that he tells us. It's a, it's a little thing that he mentions every so often, especially uh, if we're laboring hard in the work of ministry or we're kind of um, discouraged because maybe we're being criticized or we're, we're struggling in some way. And the thought is this, and I, I don't know how to phrase it correctly, so let me just try. The thought is this. It's, you'll never be a Peter. You'll never be a Paul. You'll never be a, a Daniel or an Elijah or a Ruth. Or sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm, I'll never be Billy Graham. Just insert the name of, of a Christian that you respect or a great saint of the faith. And what the devil does is he, is he creates uh, kind of an unfair and unnecessary comparison. That, that you, insert your name here, that whoever you are, that, that you're never going to be like them. You'll never be some prominent Christian servant and, and really you ought you to kind of feel bad about yourself. And what he's trying to do in that is produce either or, or both of two results. One is to get us to feel uh, unimportant and inferior to other believers. And that just leads to jealousy and envy and, and kind of a, a bitterness in our spirit. And what that uh, does is causes us to lose focus on, on bringing glory to Christ. So in one sense, when he, when he kind of compares us to other people, it, it causes us to feel inferior. And then as we feel inferior, the second result is, is that we start to lose our passion for ministry. We feel uninspired to stand firm for the Lord and to, and to be a powerful witness and to set an example and to, to talk about Christ because really, at the end of the day, this is the lie he tells us, what difference will I make? I'm just average Joe, I'm just somebody that's trying to walk with the Lord, but, but really, what, what difference, what, what can I do to, to really make a difference for the Lord? Now, in both of those cases, it's not a true humility that comes out of uh, a love for the Lord and, and being awed by the grace of God and, and, and the calling to serve Him. Actually, what this is, and this is why we know it's of the enemy and why it's so subtle, is it's, it's actually a struggle of our pride that we're not good enough, that, that we aren't being noticed enough for doing the work of the Lord, and, and, that, and that we're just kind of uh, not important. I know pretty much every pastor I've ever talked to uh, over the years uh, struggles with this feeling. I certainly have. Especially when you see uh, pastors or speakers that, that are mishandling the word, speaking to tens of thousands of people, and you go, why? Why, Lord? 
And I'm being very, very blunt and very honest here. Why, when, when I see pastors and no pastors that, are, that love the Lord and are laboring and, and really take apart the Word and, and want to study the Word and be faithful to preach that, when, when they're barely noticed and yet other people who are flippant about the Word of God have huge followings and write books and, and are well known. I've even wrestled with this uh, over the years, in terms of some friends that are in the ministry who are who are prominent or people that I knew back when back in the day, as they used to say that that kind of were nothing and now now are are known nationally, and you kind of look at that and you go well well, how am I supposed to feel because the devil stirs up jealousy right, and he stirs up a feeling of well why isn 't that me and then you 've got social media, how many are a fan of social media? That just exacerbates feelings of jealousy, right? Really, the bottom line of social media is uh, I'm living better than you and I have more than you and I know more than you. And what social media does is it, it, it creates feelings of, of coveting because we see other people taking vacations and, and going to, to wonderful places and pictures with their families. And, and we see other people uh, living maybe a, a certain way and seeming fulfilled living for the world while we're trying to struggle along to be, to be spiritually faithful. And one of the strongest accusations, one of the strongest weapons that the enemy uses is to make us feel worthless and weird and, and kind of alone as we stand for the Lord. I mean, how do we fight Target for doing what they're doing? How do we, how do we take on powerful corporations like Coca-Cola and IBM and Google and Facebook and Bank of America and PayPal when they tell us that we're intolerant for believing what the Bible says and that we need to adapt and we need to accept their lifestyle when there's absolutely no acceptance of our convictions? How do we deal with that? How do we fight that? How do we make a difference? So at the end of the day, what the enemy's trying to do is he's trying to create in us a, a feeling of insecurity about our role in society and insecurity about our abilities and effectiveness for the Lord and, and an insecurity about our place in the body. And, and, and he just kind of pushes that annoying distraction. And that can create, if we're not careful, that can create a disillusionment about serving the Lord. Now that's why I love this passage. I, I found this passage a couple weeks ago and I was just reading and, and it kind of just jumped off the page at me. Romans chapter 16, it's verses 1 to 20. And, and again, on face value as you're reading, it kind of seems boring and unimportant, but it actually highlights an important truth that I want to use to encourage us this morning. Here's the truth. Every believer... Every believer has an important and essential purpose and a calling to the work of the Lord. Every single believer has an important and essential purpose and a calling to the work of the Lord. How do we know God values us? We know God values us because Christ went to the cross with our sin. We know that God values us because Christ rose again to save us. We know God values us because then God equips us and empowers us with his Holy Spirit to be his witnesses and his ambassadors and his servants and his ministers. 
And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you've trusted Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and if you don't, I'd love to spend time talking with you after the service because you can know salvation and you can know forgiveness of sins and assurance of heaven. You can know that for a fact. And if you do know that, let me say something to you this morning, that you are named by Christ as his servant and you are important to the work of the kingdom. It doesn't matter if everybody knows your name or nobody knows your name. Every one of us who names Christ is his witness and his ambassador and his minister. And 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that every believer has been given unique spiritual gifts to do the work of ministry, that every believer has an important role in the body of Christ, whether you're a big toe or an ear or a spleen or a shoulder or a nose. It doesn't matter. Every part of the body is important. You know that if you lose a part of your body and you realize how important it was. So every believer is gifted, every believer is important to the body of Christ, and then we're given this commission to go outside of the body of Christ and to clearly communicate to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell people that God loves you, Christ died for you, Christ rose again to give you salvation, and our job as believers now, whether we're known or unknown, is to go make disciples and be his representatives. And every believer has that job, every believer is equipped for that job, and every believer is empowered for that job. Now, who are these people that we're going to read about in Romans 16? They're nobodies in the grand scheme of life, but they're somebody to the Lord. Look at it, Romans chapter 16, start in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the, Lord, of the church, which is in Kentria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ. And Statius, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who also worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man of the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Philigion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philodulus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, verse 17, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon 
crush Satan under your feet. The title of this message is The Unknowns. And that's what I kind of called those people when I first read this passage. And I, and I looked at these names that are hard to pronounce. I think I did pretty well, don't you? Uh, th- these names that are so hard to pronounce, they're so unusual and so unfamiliar that when I typed them out in Word, uh, every one of them was underlined in green, which means I don't recognize this name. It's not James and Peter and John and Sarah and, and Mary. It's, it's names that you go, Patrobus, I don't know what that means, and Urbanus and Philodelotelus or whatever, however you pronounce that name. I'm sure I got it wrong. These people are unknown, especially and even within the Word of God. How many times have we studied Romans 16, 1 to 20 and go, oh yeah, Philodelotelus, that guy's great. And yet, they're so significant to God and so significant to the work of the Lord and to Paul's ministry that within the 16 chapters in the greatest apologetic in Scripture, the the book of the Bible, which explains theology on a deep level that few of us understand, myself included, that, that, that in the middle of this great apologetic 16 chapters of Paul's finest writing about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. That in those 16 chapters, God takes over half a chapter to name these people. Why is that? Why why did God make that so important? And the fact that they are unknown compared to to the patriarchs of the faith and the names that we know and the apostles and the kings tells us that God doesn't call us to be prominent to be used of him. Please hear that this morning. God does not call us to be prominent, to be used of him. He calls us to be faithful, and he calls us to point others to Christ. That's the first of of three spiritual principles I want to give you this morning, that God doesn't call you and me to be prominent. He calls us to be faithful and to point others to Christ. And and that really, uh, the reason that's important that we understand that is that it's a challenge to what Christianity itself is teaching right now. What is the Great Commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, not to preach my opinion, not to tell you what I think, not to tell you the latest trend, not to make disciples of Paul Rhodes, but to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And I wish every pastor's conference and every worship pastor's conference would hear that message more than anything because the enemy has been effectively reprioritizing our message over the years to say ministry is not about Jesus Christ. Ministry is about you. Church is about you. Your walk is about you and being happy. It's enlightening to me that the largest pastor's conference in the world live streamed globally to thousands of churches around the world has a full lineup of business and cultural leaders who aren't saved. It doesn't have one pastor who I would look at and say, that person is theologically conservative and biblically credible. And yet, this is how we teach people to be Christians and to lead. And I don't know if that disturbs you, but it disturbs me. 
But that's the culture that we have uh, allowed within our faith. And, and the most serious problem with that is there's really not a single verse in Scripture that says you're supposed to have a ministry of prominence. In fact, Paul himself, who had the most prominent ministry outside of Jesus in the New Testament, says, I'm worthless. I'm nothing. Uh, th- that that I, I, everything is crucified with Christ. Everything is given to him, as we sang earlier. I'm completely surrendered to him because it's not about me and the churches I set up. It's about Jesus Christ. Paul says here, if you look back at verse 19, he says, I don't want you to look at the world's methods to learn how to be successful. I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. And the word innocent there means to not be mixed in. What, what, is the, what is the word telling us? Very few of us, probably none of us in this room, is ever going to have a position of worldwide influence. Probably none of us is ever going to have a position of national influence. Probably none of us is ever even going to have a position of, of real local influence. But is that what God's called us to do? Does God t- tell us in Scripture... Yeah, Paul, you need to have a worldwide influence. What does he tell us? Those people you come in contact with, tell them about the faith that you know. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Tell them for the hope that's in your heart. Tell them why you love Christ. And as you're doing that, be faithful to love me and trust me and talk about me and serve me at all times. I can find a hundred verses that'll tell you that. I can't find one verse that says everybody needs to know you. Now, we need to hear that this morning. I think this is an important message for us because it's easy for the enemy, as we said at the start, to come along and say, well, you're not David and you're not Esther and you're not John and, and, and how can you be worth anything to the Lord if, if nobody really knows you and you're not having that kind of influence? And, and what I would turn back and say is exciting to see the opportunities the Lord creates for each of us every single day. The people you can influence are not necessarily the people I'm going to influence, and that's the power of the body. The power of the body is tomorrow you're going to work with, go to school with, interact with people that I may never meet. But you have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. You may not meet and interact with the people that I meet with, but I have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. And all the sermons in the world may not change that if you can put your arm around somebody and say, I need to pray for you. And the person goes, why would you pray for me? And you say, because God loves you. And I can pray and God hears our prayer. And you will find comfort in him. That's more effective than any message I'll ever preach. Now when we carry that mindset of deflection, That mindset of deflection away from self and focus on telling people about Christ, that's when we're most effective. And we know that's true because no one needs me, Paul Rhodes, to be saved. No one needs me to resolve the issues in their life. You know why? Because I can't. But you know who can? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can save them. Jesus Christ can heal them. Jesus Christ can minister to them. Jesus Christ can resolve the issues in their life. And one of the huge deceptions within our culture right now 
is that we're more self-sufficient than ever. And we're convinced that we don't need God. We don't need spirituality. We don't need religion. We certainly don't need to talk about a Savior. Sin has become more mainstream in our country than ever before. And, and it's to the point that now, and, and I hope you see how quickly this is happening, now moral values and biblical standards are now abnormal. It's no longer that they're kind of pushed against. Now we are be put, being put on the spot that it is abnormal. And instead of running to the Lord, instead of running to church, what we've done as a country is we've run away from the Lord. A Pew Research study last year said that the percentage of adults who describe themselves as Christians has dropped eight percentage points in seven years, while the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular has jumped six points. That's a 14-point swing in seven years. The share of Americans who identify with non-Christian faiths rose 1.2 percentage points with growth especially among Muslims and Hindus. So it should be no surprise to us as all, as my wife mentioned earlier, that 70% of youth walk away from church after high school. 70% of youth walk away from church after high school. Now at the same time this is going on, we've become the age of narcissism or as I call it, the Twitter culture. The most popular apps, apart from search apps like Google and Yahoo, Yahoo, where did that come from? Yahoo, sorry Yahoo. The most po- <laughs> I talk for a living, can you believe it? The most popular apps, finally got it out, thank you, are Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Now, what does that tell us? Well, certainly it tells us that our cultures become more self-absorbed. Certainly it tells us that our cultures become more entitled. But, but while it's easy to be critical about that and jaded about that and shake our heads, or SMH as they say, right? I think what it shows is a deeper message. That people are looking for emotional and spiritual meaning. There is an emotional and spiritual neediness in our culture. And the breakdown of marriage and the breakdown of the family, as much among Christians as among non-Christians, has put so many children in a position of instability and fear and self-reliance. Let me give you some more statistics. 50% of all North American children will witness the divorce of their parents. Half of them will witness that before they're 18, and almost half of them will see their parents have a second divorce. 10% of kids will see their parents have at least a third divorce. 40% of children growing up in America today are being raised without their fathers. Children of divorced parents are four times more likely to report relational problems with peers and friends than children whose parents keep their marriages intact. Children of divorce tend to be more aggressive than others and are two times more likely to drop out of high school, and adult children of divorce are two times as likely to, to attempt suicide. Now, I don't say that if you're divorced this morning or been through that, I don't say that to make you feel bad. We need to pray for blended families. 
we need to pray and support and encourage those who are, who are in um, that situation, who have experienced divorce. We need to love them and support them and strengthen them. And those of us who are married, we need to work harder on our marriages, right? Say amen to that, please. No more of this nonsense and selfishness and I want this and I want this and you don't meet my needs. You know what? Get over it. Get over it. The Bible calls us to be sacrificial, to love our wives, men, as Christ loved the church. You want a high standard? There it is. Ladies, respect and honor your husband as unto the Lord, not because culture or the or I tell you to, but because the Lord tells you to, and you do it as a service to him. I've seen, I'm so frustrated. Forgive me, I'm on a tangent here, okay? My wife tangented. Is that a word? I'm going to tangent. I'm tired. I'm tired of counseling people that don't want to work on their marriages. Don't ever come see me. I'll talk to you, but I'm going to tell you very straightforward what you need to do. Love your wives, men. Stop messing around. Stop looking at other women. Stop looking at pornography. Stop being lazy. Get on your marriage. And women, stop complaining. Love your husbands. Serve your husbands. Honor your husbands. It doesn't make you less in the Lord. It makes you stronger in the Lord. The breakup of marriage is killing the church, and it's killing Christianity, and it's killing kids, literally and figuratively. We need to work hard on this. Because millennials right now are looking for identity. Why do you think there is so much emphasis right now on defining your own identity, sexual or otherwise? And now that truth is subjective, and now that truth is individualized, everything's up for grabs, even though it's a complete contradiction to what is tangibly true. I don't know if you saw the video this week where students at the University of Washington were interviewed by a five foot nine white guy. I tell you that because it's important. A five foot nine white guy who wanted to ask them about identity. And he talked to the students about the whole transgender bathroom issue, seeing if they're okay with people identifying however they want. And they were kind of tentative, but they're all like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever you think, however you feel, whatever you want, that's fine with me. Then he progressively asked them, well, would you be okay if I viewed myself as a woman? Well, yeah, I guess. Or, or what if I said I was Chinese? Well, I, I guess if you feel it's okay that you're Chinese, that's fine. He's a five foot nine white guy, as white as I am, and I'm white. I can't run, I can't jump, I can't do anything. I'm just pathetic. <laughs> and then he said, Well, what if I'm nine years old? And they looked at him and he said, what if I want to go to first grade? Would that be okay? And one student's like, oh, I, I guess if you want to sit in first grade, that's fine. And then he said, well, what if I said I'm six foot five? And they were kind of like, no, I don't think I'm okay with you because you're not six foot five. And that was the whole point. So you're okay if I'm a Chinese woman who's nine years old and wants to go to first grade, and I'm six foot five. And they're kind of like, it was the theater of the absurd. Because he was none of those things. And that was tangibly obvious. And yet they didn't know how to answer that because culture is telling them, you have to believe and accept this. And that is sad and it's disturbing. 
but it's the new narrative. And the pressure is on us that unless we accept it, even though it's scientifically deniable, not only are we going to be on the outside of cultural acceptance, but we may even be punished by it. And we should be upset and wise and worry about what lies ahead. But listen, let's see a different angle on it. We need to have the heart of Jesus who looked at the crowd and was moved with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. I can get uptight and angry and look at that. That's ridiculous. He's not a six foot five Chinese woman. Come on. And, and we can get uptight and we can share it on our social media. Look at this. This is crazy. Or we can say, this is how lost the world is, and they have one answer, Jesus Christ. And we're the ones with the answer. So we can sit back and be frustrated, or we can tell people. Because culture is more confused and more self-obsessed than ever. And that is a deeper spiritual problem, that there is a deep longing for meaning and purpose and identity. And even though we're being rejected, we keep, need to keep reminding them that the only meaning, purpose, and identity is found in the eternal satisfaction in Jesus Christ. We have to take that message to the world. And that's why it's so important that we stand firm for the Lord and we serve the Lord faithfully. And in whatever situation he puts us in, whether it's holding babies in the nursery this morning or whether it's talking to our neighbor or whether it's singing and sharing or whether it's going to family members and saying, you know what, I'm not going to participate in what you're doing at this holiday because I love Jesus Christ. Or whether it's talking to 50,000 people, it does not matter because we are called to be faithful in every one of those situations. And here's the third principle, and we'll move toward conclusion. The third principle is the Lord will always bless our faith and our faithfulness. The Lord will always bless our faith and our faithfulness, wherever and however he calls us to serve. But remember, his definition of blessing may not be the same as ours. Because we tend to think materially, don't we? We tend to think numbers and attention and recognition and advancement and influence. But I want you to look back. I know we haven't spent a lot of time in the text. I want you to look back at chapter 16, verses 1 to 16, and I want you to see what you don't see. See what you don't see here. We are told nothing, nothing about anything these people accomplished. We are just told that they were faithful. Phoebe, a servant of Christ, and the church, and a helper of many, Prisca and Aquila, fellow workers who literally risked their necks for Paul and the churches. Epinetus, beloved, the first convert from Asia, which means he was open about it. Mary, who worked hard. Adronicus and Junius, kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They were outstanding among the apostles. I bet you've never heard of them before. I had before a couple weeks ago. Ampelatus, beloved. Urbanus, fellow worker in Christ. Stachus, beloved. Apelles, approved in Christ. Remember that, we're going to come back to it in a second. The house of Aristobulus, they were open about their faith. Herodian, who was a kinsman. The house of Narcissus, they were in the Lord. That phrase is used six times in the text. It means they represented Christ well, and it wasn't about them, which is Beautifully ironic for a man named Narcissus, right? 
Typhenia and Tryphosa, two women who were workers in the Lord. Persis, who was beloved, who worked hard in the Lord. We don't say what happened, what he accomplished, what his success was. He just worked hard. Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother. And then that list of people that I'm not going to go through again because my brain is tired. They're all described as saints. Over 27 people. Two households, people you and I have likely never heard about before, let alone study. In the book of Romans, the greatest treatise on the faith, they each get one line. They don't tell us anything about what they accomplished. But God says these people are worth knowing. Because they're part of the body of Christ in Rome. We don't see that they held crusades or had concerts or wrote books or that somehow in the wicked, carnal, political city of Rome that they had a dramatic spiritual influence. All they're described as is beloved workers open about their faith representing Christ well. Oh, if God would describe you and me that way, praise his name. And then look back at verse 10 for a minute where it says that Apelles was approved in Christ. I got to take time on this one because this is a tremendous concept that is, is a financial term. See, in the ancient world, there was no banking system like we have. There was no paper money. All money was made from metal. It was heated until it was liquid, and then it was put into a mold and allowed to cool. And when the coin was cooled, it was necessary to kind of smooth off the uneven edges, and the coins were soft. So people would shave them a little more closely and take a little bit more off the edge so they'd have a little bit of extra metal. This was such a problem that Athens passed over 80 laws telling people you cannot shave down coins. But some of the money changers were men of integrity and they would carefully look at the coins and they would not accept counterfeit money. These were men of honor who were genuinely only taking full weighted coins into circulation. They were called dokomos, the word is approved. The Bible calls us to be dokomos, to be people of spiritual integrity who don't shave the edges morally, who don't try to be counterfeit, but instead live in such a way that we prove the sanctification of Christ and we prove the presence of Christ every single day. And then Paul comes back, we'll end with this, and he warns in the only kind of negative part of the passage in verses 17 and 18. He says, while I'm commending you, 27 people in two households, while I'm commending you, I also want to warn you. Because there are people in your midst who are not representing Christ. There are people in the body who are calling themselves Christians, but they don't truly live for or serve Christ. He talks about it back in chapter 1, verse 21. He says they know about God, but they don't honor God with how they live. And what happens is they become darkened in their minds and entrenched in their sin. And I want you to look at the word that he uses there in verse 17. He says, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you, be on guard about this because you love the Lord and you want to protect your heart and mind about being persuaded. Are you and I protecting our heart and mind against sin? 
or are we leaving the spiritual door open for intruders? This is going to sound weird, but but what is your personal security system against sin? Men, I talked about pornography earlier. 50%, I think the number is, of church men, of men who are active in an evangelical church, struggle with pornography. Have you put guards on your phone or on your computer to prevent you from looking at it? Because it'll mess you up. It'll mess up your marriage. I've had women in my office over the years crying and saying, my husband's into pornography. He won't stop looking at it. It's just all the time, and I don't know what to do about it because it's affected our marriage. Men, are you leaving the door open to sin just to wander in with a couple clicks? Are you doing that? Because if you are, you're damaging your wife, and you're damaging the cause of Christ. And women don't think you're exempt from it either. I think the number is 30 40% of women in church, struggle with pornography too. We didn't usually think of women in pornography, but it's there. So, are we just are we just leaving the door open? Well, devil, you just come in and take whatever you need. Just just do your damage because it's okay. Or have we set up a security system for our heart and mind? And look at the other warnings he gives here. I'll go through them quickly in verses 17 and 18. He says there are three warnings about these pseudo-Christians. I'm sorry to be strong this morning, but the Lord's giving us this word. Actually, I'm not sorry. Number one warning, keep an eye on and turn away from those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching of the word. In other words, watch out and stay away from those who contradict the word through their health convictions and their personal lifestyle. We need to evaluate this in terms of ourselves and in terms of the people we're hanging out with. Are they matching the word or are they contradicting the word? The phrase here is keep your eye on. It means to fix your eye on, to understand their motives, to look at their methods, and to make sure you know what their end goal is. And he says what we have to do is to turn away from them. This is a hard sentence right here. It means to deviate course and even shun them. To be willing to disassociate for the sake of protecting your walk and the work and witness of the gospel. If that means avoiding communion with them, if it means avoiding communication with them, so we won't be leavened and infected by them, then so be it. Because the word he uses here is that they're hindrances. It's the Greek word scandalon, from which we get the word scandal. It's the word for the little stick that's the trigger on a trap. You know that? When you set up a little box trap and there's a trigger with a rope, and when the animal goes in there, you pull it. That's the scandalon. That's the stick. And he says there are going to be people in your life that are a scandalon. They're going to be a stick that's trying to trap you. And if you don't guard your heart against it, they're going to hinder you when you walk. How will you know them? Number two, you're going to recognize that their appetites and desires are indicative of slavery to sin. You can, listen, I can spend five minutes with a person and know what they're all about. I'm not anything special. I've got tons of counseling experience. That means nothing at this point. When you spend five minutes around a person, you know what their desires are. You look in their heart. You hear how they talk. You watch what they talk about. And you know this is what this person cares about. And if you're around people that refuse to break free of their old self and are unwilling to separate from the world because it's almost funny to them that they can do that, then you need to watch out because they're a scandal onto you. 
people that are flipping about the word, people that just don't have any desire to walk by the word, they're compromised, they, they just, it, they, it doesn't matter to them. That's indicative of slavery to sin. When you love Jesus Christ, you want nothing to do with sin. I mean zero. And then he says, third, watch out and avoid those who use smooth and flattering speech that deceives the hearts of the unsuspecting. The tongue is a fire. It's a world of evil, and it's hard to put out. So we need to have great discernment and great wisdom to spot spiritual error. If you don't know spiritual error, then get in the word of God and start studying it so you know spiritual error. Take a stand against gossip, slander, divisive talk, people who want to talk about somebody else behind their back, especially another believer, say, I'm not putting up with this. I'm not listening to this. Get rid of it. If somebody does that in this church, you say, stop right now. We're going to go talk to that person, and we're going to find out if that's true. Well, I, I want, now, listen, you're willing to stand here and talk about that person to me. Why aren't you going to tell it to him? Don't listen to it for another second. And if they're like, no, 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 then you say, let's go talk to Paul. And we'll pray about it. We'll get to the bottom of it. We'll get to the truth. Because truth is what matters. We got to put an end to this. The calling is to stand for Christ. Look at it. We're done. And to serve faithfully. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whoever we're around. Stand for Christ. Serve faithfully. And stand against whatever damages hearts and damages the body. And you know what? Nobody ever may notice us. We may be one of the unknowns. We'll never get our name in the Bible because the Bible's done. But that doesn't mean that we're not every bit as called as Peter and Paul. Or that the Lord can't use us in mighty ways to impact people for Christ. You know, I, I love Elijah. And I think about Elijah and I think, what did Elijah do? He raised people from the dead. He called down fire from heaven. He took on Ahab and Jezebel. He made prophecies. Elijah was the man. You know what the Bible says in James chapter 5? Elijah was a man just like you and me. Now you can say, well, that's spiritual hyperbole, and God doesn't really mean that, but it's actually true. So whoever you are this morning, whether you're a teenager or an adult, whether you're a young Christian or a mature Christian, wherever you serve, listen now, don't be distracted. Wherever you serve, God has gifted you and he's called you and you can have a profound spiritual influence on so many people. What God has called you and I to do is to be full of faith and to be faithful. And he says, if you're faithful in a little, I'll give you much. You're just faithful in a little. You just keep plugging away. You're consistent. You walk with me. You love me. You call on my name. You study my word. You tell people about me. And it's not flashy and it's not exciting. And you may not have 10,000 people listening to you. But you're faithful to me. And you know what? Because you're faithful in a little, I'm going to give you much. What is God calling you to this morning? What is God calling me to this morning? What is God calling this church to this morning? That if we're faithful in a little, God will give us abundantly and he will approve us in Christ. Let's get our hearts ready. God wants to use us this week. God wants to use you today. God wants to use you tomorrow. You say, well, I'm just, I'm just, no, don't ever say I'm just. You are a son of the living God. 
You are saved by Jesus Christ's blood and you are secured by his resurrection and by his Holy Spirit. You hold his word in your hand and anytime you want to call on him, he's ready to listen. Don't say, I'm just. We're servants of God. Let's serve him well. Let's close our eyes.